Welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for May 6th, 2023. And as always, our intro music was Leonard Cohen singing Democracy. Can't start any better than that, we found, so we continue to do it every week. You're listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown. Full-powered Missoula Community Radio live streaming on 101.5 KFGM, no punctuation, .org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And... For today, we have Mark Anderlich and Sue Kirchmeyer. Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> How do it? How do? Glad to have you. Any variation will work. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way this show rolls. The individual is in charge. It's not groupthink. Doesn't get passed through a focus group. So we broadcast from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which are also located in the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. Our show, Voice of the People, seeks to give local, state, national, and international news and perspectives on the news, which where the individual comes in is <laughs> yes. um, that you anyway, these that you rarely hear from the corporate news media. We cite our sources and try our best to follow good journalistic ethics. Our bias is to inform and educate the 99%, the working class in Montana, so we can build our power to establish political and economic democracy. That said, uh, we want to give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick. Hey, Mick. Please come back. <laughs> Mick being the original sound sound man. Yeah. And he's always welcome here. That's right. That's right. We have a we have an empty chair for him. Uh, <laughs> and he comes. <laughs> um so uh, we have a good show today. Later in the show, we feature an interview of Missoula State Representative and international media star. Well said. <laughs> yeah, Zoe Zephyr um, and uh, from the Montana DSA podcast. <clears throat> and we play an editorial very soon here by Sarah McLean. We also look at the prime cause of inflation 
and and what union activity is going on a lot of stuff on union activity uh, both here and around the world um, that's a whole lot more for your community radio dollar absolutely this sounds like it's going to be a very busy 120 minutes uh i look forward to hearing all of it as well as the rest of the show our word of the week is mayday this is the term used to signal distress from aircraft and the maritime world as well mm-hmm. and is their distress in the world today you, I you said a, a rhetorical <laughs> question <laughs> that's uh that's a mouthful jim um i'm not sure if we yell mayday uh to the universe uh what you know what sort of help might come but maybe there's right. a rescue ship out there that uh anyway <laughs> mm, the ship of fools <laughs> the ship of fools yeah so I know this is not the meaning we want here, but it fits. Yes, it does. And we we like our bad puns here on this show. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> um, the distress signal meaning, and it's spelled differently too, by the way, comes from the French term, help me. But you are correct, Jim. There is a lot of distressing happening today. And for a more appropriate version of May Day, we turn to Sarah McLean reading her published editorial of May 1st. Hi, I'm Sarah McLean, an organizer for the Democratic Socialists of America, this Western Montana Democratic Socialist chapter. This is an op-ed about May Day. What does May Day mean? May Day isn't only a day for a spring celebration of ancient and pagan origin. It is an internationally recognized day celebrating and honoring the workers of this world and their hard-won rights. The origins of this tradition date back to the struggle for a shorter working day and the events which took place in Haymarket Square, Chicago, in early May 1886 when there were massive strikes all over the United States demanding an eight-hour workday, which the business and factory owners did not want to grant. It is hard to believe that the eight-hour day had to be fought for against the opposition of those who might lose a few dollars by recognizing other people's human right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But the strike in Chicago cost the lives of many workers shot by police at a demonstration on May 4th, as well as the lives of seven policemen when a bomb was thrown into their advancing ranks. By whom? An agent provocateur? Without evidence, eight men were arrested, three of whom were not at the demonstration that day, and five self-proclaimed anarchists were condemned to death. The negative reaction in this country was immense, and the Haymarket Affair lived on to inspire the establishment of International Workers' Day on May 1st, around the world for over a 100 years. In some countries, it is a public holiday. In this country, not so much. 
but maybe times are changing. Finally, we are asking again, why do the same few people always get all the money and power in our country? Do we exist just to serve them and make their lives better? No. Remember when British Prime Minister Thatcher, that devotee of neoliberalism, said, there is no such thing as society? Well, yes, there is. We developed society to live in for our mutual benefit, because everyone needs help sometime, and everyone will get sick someday. No one wants to have to construct their own infrastructure to benefit only themselves. That would be a ridiculous way of doing things. And of course, it does not happen. Though we wouldn't know it, hearing the right-wing self-made mantra. These days, workers are waking up from the comatose state imposed by 40-odd years of the neoliberal experiment and are forming unions again after their decline since the 70s. New ones, without the ossified and overpaid leadership of the 50s and 60s. Different challenges face us now. Automation will require a planned economy to cope with the repercussions to our society, which otherwise would have to countenance mass unemployment. We cannot deal with technological and climate changes on an ad hoc and market-driven basis and at the same time, meet people's human rights and needs. But there is reason to be encouraged. The union at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island, New York City, led by Chris Smalls, and the almost 300 unions at Starbucks stores in 37 states, all established despite the extreme countermeasures of Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz, respectively, the new union at the Black Coffee Roasting Company in Missoula, Montana, the inroads made by Will Lehman in the recent UAW election, and the sterling example of the Tennessee Three, Jones, Pearson, and Johnson, who demanded the right to express anti-gun proliferation views in their own Capitol building. This May Day, let's work towards a society where there is real democracy, with workplace and community councils, and where there is production to satisfy needs, including the needs of the earth, and not just to make a profit for the few. Happy May Day. Spring is coming. All right. Pretty nice, huh? <laughs> so I've um, <clears throat> outsourced some of the writing for this, uh, <laughs> this show. <laughs> um Hey, well, um, as long as she's uh, respecting the picket line, yes, everything's okay. <laughs> she she will do so absolutely. Um, so we we have, um, uh, you know, obviously May Day is an international workers' day, and it's celebrated around the world. And as Sarah said, not so much here, but <laughs> it, it is celebrated here in parts. But um, but uh, I have a, a, a you know. Today, workers' issues around the world strike common and familiar themes. Uh, Olivia Rosan reports on the website Common Dreams on May 2nd. Uh, workers from Japan to France took to the streets on Monday for the largest May Day demonstrations since COVID-19 restrictions pushed people inside three years ago. 
Marchers expressed frustration with both their nation's policies, such as French President Emmanuel Macron's raising of the retirement age in March, and global issues like the rising cost of living and the climate crisis. So we're going to, these themes are going to be throughout the whole show. Uh, as a matter of fact, no matter where in the world you are, um, the price of everything has increased except for our wages, increase our minimum wages, one activist speaking in Seoul, South Korea, told the crowd, as the Associated Press reported. Uh, they also had signs that said, reduce our working hours and the price of everything has increased except for our wages. South Korea's protests were the largest in the nation since the pandemic, with organizers predicting 30,000 people each would attend the two biggest rallies planned for the nation's capital alone. Al Jazeera reported, activists there criticized right-wing President Yoon Suk-yeol, who has targeted some unions after the guise of reforming what he claims are irregularities. His government had also considered a plan to extend a cap on working hours to 69 a week. Oh, my God. Um, how how gracious is that? <laughs> Only 69 yeah. hours a week. Um, That's a bigger number than 40, right? Just making sure. It's quite a bit bigger. Um, yeah, the arithmetic might change on the other side of the international dateline. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he they considered that before a backlash from younger Koreans forced it to reconsider in March, as CNN explained at the time. Already, scores of people die of overworking every year in South Korea, so much so that there's a special word for it, guarosa. Mm -hmm. Some marchers called for the president to resign. Dr. Simone Chun tweeted. Uh, in Tokyo, Japan, across the Japan Sea, uh, meanwhile, thousands in Tokyo, meanwhile, thousands demonstrated against Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's plan to double the defense budget. Money, they argue, should go toward meeting people's basic needs, the Associated Press reported. Um, demonstrations also took place in the Philippines, where marchers demanded a higher minimum wage in Taiwan, where they wanted improved labor policies, and Indonesia, where they demanded the government repeal a job creation law they said favored business interests over environmental protections or worker rights. Uh, protester Sri Ajeng said uh, to the Associated Press, job creation law must be repealed. It's only oriented to benefit employers, not workers, end quote. Um, Moving further west in Sri Lanka, uh, protesters push back on plans to privatize state or partially government-run businesses amidst the country's worst ever economic crisis. In Pakistan, demonstrators demonstrations were prohibited in some cities due to security concerns, leading unions to hold indoor rallies in Peshawar through an outdoor, though an outdoor gathering in Lahore still drew large crowds. Uh, further west, domestic migrant workers in Lebanon played a large role in Beirut's march, while about a dozen demonstrators in Turkey were detained by police while attempting to access Istanbul's Taksim Square, where President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had closed to protests. Marches 
Of course, also took place across Europe, with more than 70 in Spain alone, where unions called for higher wages and supported the push for a four-day work week. In Italy, protests came as Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, the leader of the nation's most right-wing government since World War II, announced a plan to reduce anti-poverty funds and make it easier for businesses to offer short-term contracts to workers, as Al Jazeera reported further. According to Reuters, Maloney said that, quote, I am proud of the government choosing to celebrate May 1st International Workers' Day with facts instead of words, end quote. However, leader of Italy's principal CGIL union, Maurizio Landini, criticized Maloney's plan and said that wages were too low in the country because of high taxes and an elevated level of job security, end quote. Insecurity. Oh, insecurity, yes. <laughs> that makes it, two little letters make a big difference, don't they? Yes. Um, and so you can you can kind of see the themes going on here. People, because of inflation, people need pay raises. There's much more job insecurity, uh, and the governments are either, you know, trying to restrict unions or uh, reducing the social safety net. And all of these are common to the protests. Um, and in the Netherlands. Um, um, it was the nation's largest union itself that faced protests from its employees who said that they would go on strike Tuesday for higher wages amidst rising inflation, which rose 10% in 2022 and is expected to rise another 3% in 2023 and 2024 each. Employees of the union, FNV, want that entire jump to be covered, but the union has only offered raises of 3% to 7% this year, 5% next year and a maximum of 5% each year after 2025. Um, FNV. So that's what was offered to the union, right? That's what was offered to the union. Yeah. So gotcha. uh, FNV employee representative Judith Westhook told Reuters News, FNV staff also has the highest has the right to an honest wage deal that is appropriate for these times. It is painful that we have to go on strike but FNV staff also has the right to an honest wage deal, uh, end quote. Um, and May Day in Germany began the night before with a Take Back the Night march to protest violence against women and LGBTQ plus people, which drew thousands, the AP reported. And finally, in France, Marches channeled lingering rage over uh, President Macron's decision to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. And I might add here, um, this is, in, in France, there's no such thing as, uh, as a private pension, uh, 401k, uh, any of these that depend upon the stock market for income. The, their retirement system is entirely government funded, which is exactly the way it should be, uh, because you know you, you, your retirement shouldn't depend upon the casino that's Wall Street um, or the equivalent. The the bourse I think is in Paris, right? Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so and, and so that's significant that Macron just rammed through uh, pr pr undemocratically through. 
to reduce the retirement age from 62 to 64 because he said that they're running out of money. Well, we've also learned in past shows that sovereign governments and in France is is a sovereign government, but they don't have their own currency. And so uh, Macron, uh, mm-hmm. they have the euro, in which right. France, France does not control, unlike the U.S. dollar. So if we had a retirement system in this country that was entirely government funded, which is very possible, um, that there it would be uh, permanently assured um, because the government can never go broke as long as they pay what they say they're going to pay, um, that's what works. But in France, since they lost their sovereign currency, uh, the franc to the euro, um, it, it, that they don't, they don't have that flexibility and have to, um, be like a state government in this country. Uh, you know, uh, they have to limit their, uh, expenditures, to match their income. And of course, uh, it's very unpopular in France, this extremely unpopular and Macron's government's probably going to fall um, soon or, you know, at the next election, which may be a while, but um, and so and, and unions hoped it would be the largest May Day in years in France. And this seems possible since all of the major unions were working together for just the third time since 1945, the Washington Post noted. The last time this happened in 2009, crowds reached 1.2 million people. Laurent Berger, who leads the nation's largest and more moderate union, CFDT, said on Sunday I think we'll see hundreds of thousands of demonstrators, perhaps one million or one and a half million, as France 24 reported. Some protesters broke windows in stores and banks in Paris, the AP reported. Meanwhile, police sprayed tear gas in the capital and other French cities, while at least two journalists were caught in the crossfire, according to France 24. That's their. T- that's one of their TV stations. Right. Videos shared on social media showed that one journalist's helmet was broken and another was forced to the ground by tear gas. A French court allowed police to deploy drones to monitor crowds, which non-government organizations and lawyers unions said violated marchers' rights. Anger wasn't limited to Macron. Citizen climate activists with Extinction Rebellion Paris targeted the Louis Vuitton Museum, which they argued was a tax tool for the company to reduce what they paid to the state with spray paint. They pointed to an Oxfam France report finding that the companies in the nation's uh, uh, CAC uh, 40 stock index on the bourse um, would put the world on track for three and a half degrees centigrade of warming by 2100. The group tweeted, This is why we ask large companies to take their responsibility and act in the fight against global warming, end quote. And the last little bit of news from May Day is support for the May Day protest also came from the world's indigenous people. The International Indigenous Peoples Movement for Self-Determination and Liberation, this is a quote, greets the working peoples of the world, especially our fellow indigenous peoples, and their valiant struggle for just wages, better working conditions, and human rights, the group said in a statement. Quote, the struggle for self-determination and liberation is not possible without linkage, linkage between indigenous peoples 
and the working class in tearing down systems of oppression and exploitation, end quote. That sure sounds like French news. Uh, uh, and I'm pleased to hear that it the environment was an issue that was recognized and wrapped tightly mm-hmm. together with the the typical you know you know international day may day mm-hmm. Nas- international workers day themes so i i don't think i heard it from anywhere else which is odd well and there the climate is 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 a workers issue too absolutely oh yeah i, I mean, agree big time big time so yeah i agree and i i agree is it yeah. Macron showing his neoliberal um, bootstraps? Yes. <laughs> gotcha. That's that's his that's his deal. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't say bootstraps go, in French. Go go you ahead, Sue. Don't hear people saying even uttering the words 3.5 degrees centigrade or warming by 2100. It's like don't even say it. Right. Right. Yeah. You see that on the backs of the stock, the companies in the stock index. Um, mm. it's just really chilling. I mean, trying to get people, corporate uh, corporations to come up to the standard they need to, uh, it's, it's daunting. It's daunting and it's also necessary. And, uh, I mean, it, honestly, in my opinion, it's somehow we have to break the grip that neoliberal capitalism has on, on all of our societies somehow. Right? Yes. And because otherwise we're, um, we're just, you know, talking to the wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they won't bring, I mean, the whole inflation thing that's driving so much unrest and food shortages and everything that's going on um, around the globe. Um, it just can be tied right into not being able to control corporations and monopolies mm-hmm. and of course it's being put on the back of people right. who work. Well, so how many we can put out of unemployment in order to bring the slow yeah and there's down. there is so backwards ah. <laughs> yeah. no and it's you, you know there there is a large amount of support for this guterish head of the united nations says environment 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 um, that guy that lives in the 800-acre uh, theme park in Vatican Hill, they won't mention names. This is not a religious broadcast. But he unequivocally and stridently says, whenever he's asked, and even when he's not asked, the environment is necessary for the for the Earth's life to be sustained and for the quality of people's lives. And the lives of every other living thing. So. So as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. What's first in our current news, Mark? Well, um, follow follow our show's theme today, uh, May Day. We have lots of stories about labor unions. But first to note about a common theme in May Day events around the world affecting all workers, and that is inflation. Claire Kellaway writes in Food and Power on May 4th, quote, a new study by economist authors Isabella Weber and Evan Wozner at the University of Massachusetts Amherst made publicly available last week, argue that the U.S. 
COVID, quote, the U.S. COVID-19 inflation is predominantly a seller's inflation that derives from microeconomic origins, namely the ability of firms with market power to hike prices, end quote. Or as one economist for insurance company Alliance told the Wall Street Journal, quote, there is not enough competition in the food sector and corporations have been able to raise prices together without fear of losing sales to cost-cutting competitors, end quote. Uh, Weber and Wasner's review of corporate financials and investor calls finds that much of the inflation in late 2020 and the first half of 2021 went to pay for higher corporate profits. In the second quarter of 2021, um, Profit margins for U.S. non-financial corporations jumped 13.5%, the largest increase in nearly 75 years. <laughs> Gosh. Um, in a less consolidated market, we'd expect competitors to eat into these profits and take sales away from one another by offering lower prices. But Weber and Wasner find that food corporations abuse their market power and raise prices in concert to preserve and even grow their pre-pandemic profit margins, passing all their higher input costs onto consumers and then some. Tyson Foods, for instance, quote, more than doubled its margins and profits in the second half of 2021, end quote. This is during okay. the pandemic. Can, uh, I, can I put something in there? Sure. Well, just in that um, I've just gotten aware that um, Tyson Foods now is um, – coming into Montana and going after cow-calf, um, the vertical integration that they have in the chicken and the pork, and I guess the last oh. thing beginning is beef. And so they've been um, coming in lately and bringing their, their model, which of course impoverishes communities and turns independent ranchers into um, just, well, right. as my it, said, so well, that's that's a we'll keep keep track of that story because that's not a that's not welcome news, really. No, it's really not welcome news. Yeah. Um, and Montana has a guy who's well, Geo Stockton, who's really um, worked mm -hmm. hard on this and has been active at the national level, so he's watching it closely. We, yeah, that's good to know. So we interviewed Jill on this show uh, a couple of years ago. Wow. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, that uh, would be terrible mm -hmm. if. The, if the, you know, beef packing and calf and cow ranching, they had to get, had to be restructured to make it fit the, the very rigid standards of, uh, you know, corporate, you know, raising of meat and slaughtering it as as you know, Mark and I talked about about two or three years ago that that, um, you know, pork and chicken are you know essentially conveyor line products and they go and and they are raised to be a very very specific size and then they go to the slaughterhouse and they all fit in the box but with beef there um there's a lot of variability and montana has a vibrant industry for uh for calf and cow and and beef production because it doesn't follow the industrial model mm -hmm. it'll be terrible to see that change Mm -hmm. right, and I didn't mean to interrupt your 
Oh no, I thought it was that, great. That's, that's a good. Big that's news. that's a good interruption. Um, that's what thank, thank Voice of the People's that. all about. That's right. <laughs> is interrupters is interrupters right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, back back to the inflation article. Um, uh, Weber and Wassner say this profit seeking and double, it, uh, you know, uh, with Tyson Foods, they're remarking this profit seeking and doubled its margins of profits in the second half of 2021. This profit-seeking and parallel price hikes make inflation worse than it may have been in a more competitive market. Weber and Wasser also do not think that raising interest rates will address the seller-driven inflation, as the Federal Reserve is doing. Right? They re- they raise mm-hmm. their interest rate again, and it's not it's not addressing the problem. Um, tamping down consumer spending harms small businesses that do not have the market power to raise prices and protect profit margins, they argue. Instead, the authors promote price gouging laws and taxes on windfall profits that would discourage profit-seeking price hikes in times of emergencies. As a last resort, they also recommend strategic government price controls for, quote, systematically significant sectors, unquote, like energy, where legitimate price shocks can trigger profit-protecting inflation. Weber and Wassner focus on policies that could avert seller-driven inflation in the near term. In the long term, the White House, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and some economists have called for antitrust investigations and greater antitrust enforcement to tame corporate market power and discourage tacit collusion, end quote. So in order to save capitalism, antitrust is the absolute essential part of that right um and Mm -hmm. uh otherwise i mean they're just gaming the system and it's creating inflation for everybody right and it's uh i uh, that's 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 a great piece that uh weber and wassner you know produced is um and um elizabeth warren and people in the white house uh, have got it right. Antitrust investigations, just like uh, was necessary to clean house a hundred years ago. Plus, uh, because if those who control the prices are those that receive the profits, so how could it ever be that there would be collusion <laughs> to make sure that the prices asked are in line with profit expectations? How is that possible, Mark? Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> You got it. It's uh, it's not a free market, is it? No, it sure isn't. It's a free for all market where <laughs> where consumers yeah. are suffering all the time. Yep, yep. And only government inter. I mean, I I think antitrust would be great. I also mm-hmm. think even that's not enough. Um, right. It, it, but but it's it it still requires government intervention, and so absolutely. It, at at whatever level you want to talk about it, right? So. Right, and there and this stuff about the the majesty and miracle of the markets it it will solve all problems if you just allow that 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 mysterious balance point to be found. Well, if, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. If you know, I just had a thought that if uh, we'll solve all problems, I mean, if we end up like destroying all of civilization, well. A lot of the problems we worry about now are going to be like not, not even real things. Uh, if right. That's the case. 
So uh, yeah, maybe I think, maybe that's their way of solving pro- the neoliberal way of solving problems. Is yeah, I, I think uh, James Buchanan and Milton Friedman should be disinterred, and <laughs> let's let's uh, put them in the time machine and tell us how this is supposed to work. They sure seem <laughs> to be sure of it uh, back in the day, right? Right. And it's not playing to the script as far as this correspondence sees. Yeah, except for the rich getting richer. I mean that, that yeah. I, I think that was part of the script although it was it wasn't the set out loud piece right it was sort of the mm-hmm. like whisper the stage whisper piece right yeah, yeah it's right you know Matt Stoller had an interesting piece just this week when he mm-hmm. talked about monopolies as far as I mean yeah we're talking about you've got your monopoly already um he was talking about the process by which mergers happen you know how they keep trying to get bigger and bigger and bigger and who's going to be able to buy each other. Um, and then the judiciary comes in then, and are they going to be ruling to prevent, you know, to really understand what's at, at stake um, when these corporations do try to merge together. Um, yeah. So the ju- judiciary has a role there, which of course has been a huge focus yeah. of uh, all the, that's why they went after the judiciary so hard, the big business did. Yep. Yep. Ooh, and, wow. and they, Go ahead, Mark. Oh, they and they captured they captured the U.S. Supreme Court is next. The Montana Supreme Court. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's pretty scary. Oh, and speaking of scary, what's the next story coming down the pike, Mark? Well, you know, let's. We've been sitting here for a while. Let's get up and go to the picket line, Jim and Sue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love a picket <laughs> line, especially when it's not raining. <laughs> yes, or snowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Been, been there. Um, well, as most listeners probably know, 11,500 TV and film writers have organized a work stoppage that has some television shows airing reruns and has delayed or postponed TV and film projects. The following is a statement by Bob Hopkinson and Jason Gordon of the Writers Guild of America, uh, the WGA. That's the union of the writers that are out on strike. And so uh, this and this they issued this on May 3rd. And so this is straight from the strike leader's uh, mouth. Um, Following the unanimous recommendation of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America negotiating committee, the Board of Directors of the Writers Guild of America West and the Council of the Writers Guild of America East, that's LA and New York, um, Mm -hmm. mostly, uh, acting upon the authority granted to them by their memberships have voted unanimously to call a strike effective at midnight Tuesday, May 2nd. The decision was made following six weeks of negotiations with Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Disney, Discovery Warner, NBC Universal, Paramount, and Sony under the umbrella of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP. The WGA negotiating committee began this process intent on making a fair deal, but the studio's responses have been wholly insufficient given the existential crisis writers are facing. The company's behavior has created a gig economy inside a union workforce, and their immovable stance in this negotiation has betrayed a commitment to further devaluing the profession of writing. 
From their refusal to guarantee any level of weekly employment in episodic television to the creation of a, quote, day rate in comedy variety, to their stonewalling on free work for screenwriters and on um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence for all writers, uh, they have closed the door on their labor force and opened the door to writing as an entirely freelance position, profession. No such deal could ever be contemplated by this membership, end quote. And uh, on the Jacobin website from May 3rd, quote, members of the negotiating committee told the Hollywood Reporter that even as the union compromised on several of their proposals, the studios remained unwilling to give writers a say in their Wall Street-backed transformation of the entertainment industry in search of exponential growth. You know, Ooh. if Tyson Foods could grow exponentially, why not, mm -hmm. you know, why not Absolutely. Universal Studios, right? Um, WGA negotiating co-chair David Goodman told the trade publication, quote, with a union, sometimes in order to get what you need, you need to exercise your power. That will really be the determining factor of when we make a deal with the AMPTP, the pain that we're about to inflict on this business by withholding our work. End quote. Yeah, I kind of thought that I thought that was interesting, also in the sense that uh, his his quote at the end there, um, as we've been saying, that in order, if you decide what you need, and you know who could give it to you, you oftentimes, if you ask them nicely and they refuse, then you have to figure out how to create a crisis in their life so that they will negotiate with you. And that's what going on strike means, is creating a crisis for mm -hmm. these for these uh, outfits, these corporations. And um, and we'll see. We'll see how long this, this goes for. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And I'm, uh, I haven't yet seen the comparison between, the, you know, introducing the fact that Wall Street has building in expectations about profit and acting recklessly because you have to keep growing at this insane rate. You know, it's, it's musical chairs. You you just uh, you just play the music faster and louder, and uh, it's 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 apparent. <laughs> That in in the current era, the creative trades and crafts are um, monetized to the point of, um, you know, money defines the product. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was it, it's like you know Michael Eisner was doing a great job of running Disney, and he um, was able to keep all these horses you know corralled together, and. Uh, Bob Chappuck is a money man. And, you know, so so Disney is in this track as well as the rest of the industry. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I, in my mind, it, it started way back with um, the movie Heaven's Gate. And, it, and, and in the 70s and early 80s, there was there was a vitality and an enthusiasm and, and, a, and a tolerance for new ideas in Hollywood that was making some really terrific movies that have stood the test of time. And with one colossal failure, the whole industry was reinvented and the finance guys were put completely in charge. Yeah. And what gets made is what makes 
uh, financiers and bank rollers happy. Yep, that's you nailed that one right on the head there, Jim. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I hope it was a nice nail. You know, there's got to be some profit in there for everybody. There you go. You know, they got the guys in the union that make nails right to be compensated. Yep. Yep. Oh, I do it. That was quite a topic. Um, what do you got next, Mark, to give us um, Takasubo cardiomyopathy? <laughs> well, um, we, we we sort of take a break from the picket line right now. and Okay, um, good. But uh, we keep to the L.A. area, and this is actually a really, really good story. I mean, this is, a po- this is the most positive story of our show. It's um, about time. It's about time. Thank you. I know, I know. Um, so, uh, and it's been a story we've been covering too. And, and uh, United Teachers of Los Angeles member Amanda Katz wrote in the April 19th edition of Labor Notes, <clears throat> quote, when Los Angeles educators joined school support staff on the picket lines last month, our solidarity strike helped them clinch a contract with a 30% raise. That's not a typo. Uh, riding that wave, yesterday, educators reached a tentative agreement of our own with a 21% raise, smaller classes, and improved staffing. Superintendent Alberto Carvalho had scoffed in February when support staff voted by 96% to authorize a strike. On Twitter, he belittled the threat as empty theatrics. He said, one, two, three, circus, a predictable performance with a known outcome, desiring of nothing more than an applause, a coin, and a promise of the next show, end quote. <laughs> but fast forward one month and the joke was on him as 40, 45,000 people filled downtown's Grand Park for a high energy rally where SCIU Service Employees International Union Local 99 announced a three-day strike, and United Teachers of Los Angeles announced it would honor the picket lines. There were were more than a few signs showing Carvalho dressed as a clown. (laughs) Um, News traveled fast after the joint rally. The district's two largest unions, together comprising 65,000 workers, would stop working and grind the education system to a halt. The 30,000 teachers, assistants, bus drivers, custodians, cafeteria workers, and other support staff who make up SEIU Local 99 had been working under an expired contract since 2020. Members were making an average of $25,000 a year on average in one of the nation's most expensive cities. So when the strike happened, the schools were empty and the public took the side of the strikers. The strike forced the district into action. Bargaining recommenced, and this time Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass got involved. Workers returned to school as planned on March 24th. Late that afternoon, Local 99 announced a tentative agreement that would bring members' average salary up to $33,000, along with improvements to hours and benefits. After the strike, educators returned to the table. But the district knew that if we had to, we would strike again, and local 99 members were primed to return the favor. Besides the raise and a reduction of two students in every class at every school over the next three years, our tentative agreement increased staffing of counselors, psychologists, and social workers, 
and adds more support for special education. The district also agreed to electrify more school buses and install solar panels, dedicate funds to supporting black students, and filter the lead out of the water in school drinking fountains, though it stopped short of committing to our boldest demands on housing. University teacher Los Angeles's solidarity strike with Local 99 was not only a first for many union members, it's also uncommon in the labor movement. But as Los Angeles educators and support staff made clear, solidarity gets the goods, end quote. That, and I'll add into that um, because of the organizing that has been going on in the University of Teachers of LA since about 2016 with the method we call the, the CIO method of organizing, mm-hmm. one that's taught by Jane McAlevey, uh, and she probably was an advisor to this uh, action as well. Um, not only did uh, teachers win, like reduce class sizes, um, they won massive raises. And um, and the school district was sitting on $5 billion, by the way, so <laughs> of COVID money. So uh, <clears throat> I'm sure that's, you know, that's the case. And so, you know, they're making great progress in using this method of organizing that really empowers each individual worker and uh, creates these supermajority strikes where you could count on 96% of the people walking out. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it certainly seems to be uniformly true that this is not an outlier. You use these tools. These are the, these are the outcomes which is a great thing. It's nice to have a a outline for success when unions have struggled so dearly in the last half century. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think we were going to like touch on too what happens like in the public sector here in Montana. Is this the point that we thought we'd talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Cause we saw um, in the, um, the public sector, meaning, um, say, teachers in this in this situation, uh, and what went on in our legislature with the charter schools, um, because there was uh, a lot of um, well, there was a unanimous vote first in support of the um, the teachers, well, and beyond the teachers, the whole um, public employees association (MFPE). Um, with a whole unanimous pay, passage of what I I think is the the whole pay pay package that went through, what with the I don't know billion dollars of extra we have in the budget or whatever. Anyhow, um, the there was a unanimous vote to um, approve it, uh, and then um, but then what happened um, as far as the crucial issue that was going on with public employees, especially the te- for the teachers in particular, was the damage that uh, private charter schools can cause to the system. And I don't know if you all have been following, but there was a there were companion bills that somehow got out there, one having to do with private charter schools and the other with public um, charter schools. But maybe I'll just um, it can get really confusing. Um, So I won't really talk about the public charter schools. That was more of um, interfering with the board of uh, 
the boards of public education, which already had been managing public charter schools issues. Um, but the private is a really, um, it's a really, uh, it's, it's a pivotal issue because two reasons, I think at least, is that um, it, it brings to get, well, it just can get used because education can be such a touchy issue. And it's been used, it's one of those flashpoints that's pretty cynically used by big money to turn people against each other. So, but in any case, um, so what happened in the legislature was that the um, the bill was successfully defeated. It's a House bill, went to the Senate, and then it was defeated 20 on the very last part of the session, it was defeated um, on the 26th of April, 23 to 27. And there was, everybody thought, oh, well, we did it. We had a lot of calls, thousands of calls to educate to the legislature that should be able to do it for us. Our voice is powerful. However, uh, that night, three votes were flipped and they voted to reconsider so that on the 28th, then they re-voted and three votes that had flipped um, brought the, that just suddenly passed it. So it went in the emails that came was like, yay. And then it was, oh no. And then it was, we're done. Uh, and then looking at what uh, possibilities of what people could do about it was, well, there's the legal um, maybe it, the Constitution will hold and have the judicial be a backup for the workers and for the whole issue of education in the state and what will happen to funding for all the rural schools, et cetera. Um, and that's really, that's where it's it stood as far as what was possible. Um, the resources to um, just call out the lack of um, transparency in government for flipping things behind the scenes and then coming back in and no one's there to stop it. No one can, has time. And then they shut down the whole legislature within days. Yeah. What day was the 20? I, I mean, if I was to look back at the day of the week, I mean, didn't it end like the next day or something? Yeah. How are they, how can they be held accountable at all? If you're going to have to wait for two more years to get the people who flipped out, but what's more likely to happen is the people who don't flip are going to be out. Yeah, so and and I think one there's a couple of things here that and I'm just going to focus on um on the on Montana Federation of Public Employees specifically. So the pay plan that was approved by the way called for wage increases of 4% this year and 4% next year. Um however, the inf official inflation rate was uh, this past year 5% and the year before that it was 6%. So that pay plan in essence is at best a holding steady or a reduction in pay uh, effectively, right? Um, so that's not such a great deal. Um, certainly not an advance in pay. Um, the, other, the other thing is that, uh, you know, without a union having being strike ready and having that as a tool in their back pocket, like the Los Angeles teachers, um, you know, school districts and the legislature are going to keep running over teachers. Um, 
and uh, and it's I, I find it to be, um, you know, a a a a definite deficit in the power of MFPE to not be an organizing union, to, to be like a full-throated business union where they do legislative stuff very well, um, although there's a limit to that, as you were pointing out, Sue. Um, and the backstop is the courts. And boy, when you start getting to that point, you're really, the, 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 the well-being of the workers in your union are in the hands of other people. And that's not, that, that's not a good that's not a good place to be in. And so, um, you know, I, I think that the, uh, and I'll, this is my opinion, um, I, th I think members of the Montana Federation of Public Employees ought to be doing exactly what the Chicago Teachers Union had done. And then, by the way, one of their organizers was just elected mayor of Chicago, um, and what the Unified Teachers of Los Angeles have done um, is uh, essentially uh, transform themselves from a business union into an organizing union, one that uses these CIO methods and that they can be strike ready and use have a strike as a realistic tool in their tool belt when the legislature does stupid things like charter schools. Yeah, and I, you know, I really feel for um, the 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 relationship that teachers have with their pupils, with their communities. I mean, they're so embedded in their communities. I think that that's uh, dangerous um, in a lot of ways to um, people who aren't really that um, pro, pro let's not have a few people control us all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at Wisconsin, that's, that's who they were going after there. But it's Wisconsin, right? With Scott and all those people. Oh, um, you're, you're talking about uh, uh, Scott Walker, the governor. Yeah, and, was, yeah, and he was going yeah. after public employees. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and that's. I mean, that's a big time. I mean, I've MNR, and I keep expecting them to go after us um, right. because I mean, we can shut down a lot um, if. We won't if, if we have to, but um, because there's that relationship there that really preserves democracy. If you and that's I think the biggest the biggest threat I think is of course is that, or the biggest possibility is that in the process of doing the, the um, 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 deep organizing um, as you're saying, um, being mm -hmm. strike ready, that that also is bringing in your community and that is so is so important in the antidote because they're trying to break that relationship. They're trying to um, get at that relationship and saying, well, teachers aren't listening to parents and, um, you know, books or whatever are like, I don't know, whatever they are, um, that, that, that they, they want to break that, um, that relationship um, because mm -hmm. that's really where your democracy is. I really think that teachers are, just like the judicial, they they are, they are, they can't be, they have, they have to be equal. They, they can't be judging. They, they well, like a nurse. I mean, when you go to work, you cannot look at somebody and say, "I'm not going to take care of you because you are red or blue." Mm -hmm. um, you you are nonpartisan when you're there, and mm -hmm. I just think that's what democracy is about. That's the same thing the judges are trying have to do, and they don't like that. 
They want you to come down on your side and it better be their side or you, I mean, they don't care. Yep. Anyhow. Yep. You're, that's very well said. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. Yes, let's, let's jump to Starbucks, and um, let's see how the Starbucks Workers United are doing bargaining a first contract at its about 300 unionized stores across the country. Uh, so Jenny Brown writes in the May 4th labor notes, quote, Last September, the Starbucks Workers United Union made a range of non-economic proposals, but Starbucks has yet to respond. In a normal bargaining process, the company would have tentatively agreed to one or more of these or made a counterproposal, but it hasn't done either. Instead, the company accused the union of 73 charges of failure to bargain, all of which were eventually dismissed by the National Labor Relations Board. The board has repeatedly found that Starbucks has failed to bargain in good faith itself. On April 19th, uh, the Star, uh, Starbucks Workers United uh, unveiled its economic proposals, including $20 an hour to start, 5% annual raises, annual cost of living adjustments, health care for full and part-timers, and expanded sick and personal leave. That's their opening proposals. The union is also proposing guaranteed and consistent scheduling, in-store health and safety committees, and that Starbucks not be able to cut wages or benefits or change working conditions without the consent of the workers, which is very normal in a union situation, right? This is all not anything extreme by in the least. Uh, uh, many of the, these proposals would help the persistent turnover in erratic scheduling that exacerbate the understaffing crisis. At Starbucks regional headquarters in Manhattan on May 1st, staff were setting up an office pizza party and <laughs> to, <laughs> to promote work. <laughs> I just add this in to promote the, the uh, Starbucks uh, management staff. Uh, uh, you know, they practice what they teach, pizza parties, right? Um, <laughs> anyway, they were setting up a pizza oh. party. <laughs> they were setting up a pizza party when they heard a chant come from the hallway of their 15th floor glass enclosed office. Uh, who uh, The chants were, who are we? We are partners. Who are we? We are workers. Chanted a dozen Starbucks workers as they filled the reception area, many wearing shirts saying, partners, prove it. We are Starbucks, end quote. Headquarters staff fled into the back offices as the cafe workers traded off reading sections of a written statement with their demands, the chief one being that the company negotiate with the union and stop retaliating against workers for organizing. Um, said Laura Rosario, a member of Starbucks Workers United who works in Montclair, New Jersey, why are you spending so much money on union busting? What's the point of it? Just come and negotiate. Other workers put it, 20 hours minimum for benefits, really? Dangling transgendered health benefits over our heads, you sick freaks, why would you do that? And also, you all wouldn't be here if we weren't in the stores. Uh, we've got workers and customers harassing us sexually in the stores. We file complaint after complaint and nothing is done. 
And others said, you need to negotiate with us for real. You can't run for the, from this forever, end quote. And also, you're killing the younger generation of people. I've been working for this company for two years, going to school full time. I've wanted to kill myself three times already, said Elizabeth Kerchak, who works at the Caesars Bay Shopping Center store in Brooklyn. They tried to hand the statement to partner relations manager Risa Welch, who refused it. It was signed by 54 area Starbucks workers and 22 city, state, and federal elected officials, including New York City public advocate Jumaine Williams, who attended the protest. Starbucks Workers United organized simultaneous actions at Starbucks offices in Chicago and Atlanta, while five more stores filed for union elections, end quote. <laughs> that's uh that's a great let's see that's a that's a great story and i i i, I love how all, so much of the dialogue has been captured i can almost smell the pizza in, in, that, in that in that slice and dice uh you know discussion they had going on yeah are they, too bad? Are they too big to force to the table? What's going to happen? No, they're not too big to force. What's going to happen is eventually they're going to have to, or or a judge or judges right. will file 10J injunctions, that's what they're called, and will either fine um, you know, Howard Schultz or Starbucks until they actually do uh, negotiate. In, and I think in extreme cases, there might even be a threat of jail time. So uh, this is, you know, the national, it's clear that the NLR or the uh, Starbucks filing 73 charges of failure to bargain on the union is a complete stalling tactic, right? And um, and I think, you know, probably I'm, I'm hoping that the NLRB agents are pissed enough that they're not going to put up with that crap uh, any any longer. So... Or a federal judge <laughs> will get his or her hands on Starbucks and and have at them. Who does Starbucks usually? Which side is, are they red or blue? As far as oh, that's a, I, don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. That's um, that's fascinating. It's uh, I would say it's like a red cup of coffee with blue swirling around inside. It's just so that you can, so that they they look like they're woke. They look um, like they're very much in tune with the best features of this country. But when they have to put up and fully recognize their employees, uh, they play mean and they forget who they want to be seen as. My, uh, you know, full disclosure here. Uh, my daughter worked for Starbucks and she's full of stories at ah. the corporate level. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. And organizing is going on all over. Um, so, well, our next story is we, this is kind of a house cleaning story too, that Starbucks is a Democrat leaning organization, according to Vox media. Ah, well, there you go. Actually, yeah, some... certainly Democrat leaning, but, but you know, we're finding out, democracy is a pizza with many, many toppings. Well, and there's, uh, I, I find that oftentimes, not all the time, but some of the most vicious anti-union people are Democrats. 
And, yes. Um, and so Grouse Mountain Lodge, up, it's a hotel up near uh, Whitefish many, right. years, many <laughs> years ago. Uh, it was owned, actually, the chair of the board, I think, was uh, the uh, uh, Buzz Crutcher, I believe, was his name. And it probably still is his name, uh, unless he's gone on the witness protection program. <laughs> but he he uh, he was uh, uh, he he was also on the uh, statewide Texas Democrat uh, committee, and uh, was uh, a, a player in the Texas Democrats big time, and was uh, nasty uh, and in breaking the union organizing drive up there many years ago. This is. This is probably, yeah, we're talking 20 years ago, maybe. So mm-hmm. um, anyhow, um, well, our next story is, uh, as listeners know, Railroad Workers United, uh, and this was from last fall that we covered, you know, the railroad workers, um, but Railroad Workers United as an organization is an interunion cross-craft solidarity caucus of railroad workers and their supporters from all crafts, all carriers, and all unions across North America. They urge union railroaders to continue being active in their craft union and to join RWU in building solidarity and strength among all rail workers. And that's from their website. So uh, in the April 15th edition of Jacobin Magazine, organizer uh, RWU uh, organizer Ron Kamenow wrote this statement, Uh, On April 11th, 2023, Jacobin published a transcript of an interview by editor-at-large David Sirota with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In the context of a general discussion about differences between the, quote, progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration, the subject of the vote to break the strike of the railroad workers came up. In defending her votes, one to approve seven days of sick leave for rail workers, which is good, and one to support mm-hmm. the president's bill to block the strike, which is not good, Ocasio-Cortez states that she was acting on the wishes of Railroad Workers United and other groups of railroad workers. She states in the interview, quote, when you look after the vote, folks like RWU were saying, this is what we asked them to do, end quote. Later, she says, quote, Because, for example, with the rail vote, the only partners that I had leading up to that were rail workers. And if that's what they asked us to do, then that's what we did, end quote. But Ocasio-Cortez is clouding the reality of the situation by referring to the vote, when in fact there were two separate and distinctive votes. One bill proposed seven days of paid sick time, while the other bill blocked rail workers from striking. These bills were completely independent of one another. Railroad Workers United cannot speak with any certainty as to the official position of the various craft unions, respective leaderships, uh, was on the question of blocking the strike. But RWU made crystal clear by our words and actions throughout contract negotiations that while we were, of course, in full support of seven days of paid sick leave for rail, rail workers, RWU would never be in favor of any legislation denying railroad workers our human right to withhold our labor when all else fails in our struggle for safe working conditions and dignity, regardless of whatever concessions may be dangled. RWU was and is in favor of any legislation that would grant any relief to the barbaric working conditions we contend with, 
which is basically being on call 24 seven virtually. Right. Um, and, um, okay. But we would never concede our right to strike. We thank Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the House of Representatives and the Senate for their votes in support of sick leave, but we are not happy at all with her or others in both chambers, and that would include Senator Tester Mm -hmm. as well, uh, who voted to deny railroad workers the right to strike. Throughout the contract fight that raged through the fall of 2022, RWU made it clear from the start that we unequivocally opposed the failure of the Presidential Emergency Board number 250, that we opposed any tentative agreement based on the Presidential Emergency Board's recommendations, that we opposed the contract deal cut by Joe Biden and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh with the unions of the operating crafts, which is the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and Sheet Metal Air, Rail and Transportation Workers Transportation Division that we urged all trainmen and engineers to vote no and proceed to a strike, and that when all was said and done and votes were cast, we supported the majority of rank-and-file railroad workers who had voted to strike, that was 55%, to indeed engage in such activity upon the strike deadline in early December. Meanwhile, throughout the entire contract debacle, The official leadership of the Myriad unions thwarted efforts of their respective memberships to strike and continually offered up unpopular tentative agreements. Then, when Biden declared he wanted emergency legislation to block the strike without amendments on a strict up or down vote, the union leadership said nothing. Perhaps it was within this context that Ocasio-Cortez got confused about who and which organizations supported what. In the future, we would hope that Ocasio-Cortez and other politicians contact Rail Workers United if and when they are interested in the official positions and statements of the organization, end quote. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) And and I think that's about as mild of a tongue lashing as uh, both Biden and Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Tester deserve. I think... I'm, no, I, I'm sure. livid with their vote still. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I guess the, uh, the misunderstanding is that uh, so the, the individual craft unions offer to their members, let's, um, we, don't, we don't want you to go out on strike, even though the members thought they should continue to have that privilege and they should always as union members have the ability as a a membership a body of people to make democratic decisions about what they want to do as a group that that's fundamental about uh you know labor in america yeah and i'm surprised marty walsh you know gave in here also i yeah I i'm i'm, I'm most disappointed in job. him yeah. yeah, I agree completely, Mark. I don't think so. There was, I think I lost track as far as I thought that there was a ninth, what, what is a ninth hour or whatever when, when President 11th hour? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wrong hour. All right. So it was the 11th hour. And so they were negotiating. He came in and he said something. So why didn't he say, give Who's him he? The- Who's Biden. he? Okay. Biden. 
Yeah. Yep. So, so if, so, so why wasn't that settlement including? Why did it have to be a separate vote for the five to seven days? Why wasn't that in the in the in the thing that Biden like said? Let's do it this way, you know. Let's give them what they want. What? Why yeah. didn't? I so. Because if you separate it out, anytime you separate something out, it's going to get lost. I mean, who's going to pass it in the Senate, you know, wherever? I mean, we didn't have the votes, right? We got Mansion and whoever, cinema. So, <laughs> and oh, so why, please don't talk that way. I well, mean, why, yeah. Why there? If he was going to push, why didn't he push push it the whole way? Why did he I, let it go? I, I think that I, I think the simplest answer I can give is that. Biden does not really care about labor. I I don't think he mm. really does because this was a this was a a signal moment of of his administration. And I think he just mouths that he's the best labor president, you know, in all of US history. I think that's a lie basically. I think he likes to say it, but it doesn't make it true and so what he could have done, there's multiple things that could have been done to mm-hmm. your point, Sue. Um, number one, they could have uh, they could have rammed the um, uh, they could have rammed the agreement with the the pay you know down the throats of the railroads, right? That's they could have done that, or probably better yet, is that they could have just forget about. The sending them back to work, you know, breaking the strike idea ba- basically, and um, and letting letting the railroad workers sort it out um, through a strike, right? Um, that's the way the, that the system is supposed to work. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, but he's, you know, I, I would say that um, those options never occurred to the Democrats, apparently, uh, or they weren't tried anyway. As far as I know, and uh, they, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they really covered themselves in shame and cannot lay claim. I mean, Ocasio Cortez as well. I, I, I think maybe if you were confused, is what the, what this letter is saying. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that can be excused. Perhaps, but by there is no excuse for Walsh and Biden at all, and mm-hmm. and, and and they're and they're. Uh, they went along with the, uh, you know, the the oligarchs. Yes, and uh, I maybe we can temper this by saying that Mr. Biden is the least terrible labor president. Is <laughs> you know we had. Well, I, I, I wouldn't even go leader. there. I wouldn't yeah, even go okay. there. Hey, I'm I'm trying to be. But, but you're guy. you're that's fine. That's that's fine. That's, that's well. What did Grover Cleveland do during the Pullman strike? Yeah, he uh, he's you know he he was a nice guy and he said no to labor, right, right. So yeah, it, there is a precedent here. There seems to be something special about railroads, and their right to get what they want. Yeah. Well, anytime you shut down, I mean, if you've if you've really got the railroads and you've got the Teamsters and you've got the flight, mm-hmm. I mean, you shut the whole country down. That's right. And, True. I mean that that has you know some possibilities as far as because I think there's I mean there's they're pretty we're strong with the flight attendants and the and the truckers but well I guess 
I guess that's the question with the railroad workers, if they really are ready. Well, apparently they were ready to strike. Well, I'm not sure that they actually were. And already since since last fall, when all this took place, one of the major unions, the maintenance of way uh, union, um, they got rid of their longtime old leadership. And hopefully the new leadership is is going to do the CIO style of organizing to get them strike ready. It's not going to be that much longer, maybe in another year, year and a half, where they have to go back to the bargaining table. Um, and this time, the uh, Montana Rail Link will be included in the national negotiations. They won't be negotiating separately because Montana Rail Link is disappearing and it's all going to be reabsorbed mm-hmm. to Burlington Northern Santa Fe uh, Railroad. So, um, so we'll we'll keep uh, we'll keep an eye on that and and some of the other unions. I don't know what's happening with the other unions in terms of getting strike ready, but um, th- th- this is probably a, a real tough lesson to learn. Yeah, and the example is you know the only person of presidential car- uh, <laughs> caliber. <laughs> that was that was okay with a strike was Eugene Debs during the Pullman strike. <laughs> yeah. So, and Grover Cleveland was a Democrat. So, uh, I guess he wasn't a pro labor Democrat. But that's old history. But it's the only example of when this this choice had to be made. And they were definite villains and no heroes, yeah. except for except for Debs. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to welcome all of you to the Montana DSA podcast. Uh, the Montana Democratic Socialists of America chapter has commissioned us in the Helena chapter of DSA to do a series of podcasts during the legislative session. And so we've done 20 episodes so far. Our guest today is Representative Zoe Zephyr from Missoula, who I think a lot of you have heard. And if you haven't heard, it means you haven't been paying attention to the daily news concerning the Montana legislature and its uh, activities. Um, before I introduce uh, Zoe, I would like to uh, just say a little bit more about DSA. Democratic Socialists of America is the, is the United States' largest socialist organization with about 100,000 members across the United States. And if you've heard something about socialism from the Montana uh, Republican Party, you probably I get the idea that they think socialism or they, their, their line is that socialism is a form of dictatorship. Uh, it's just the opposite of that, um, as they have demonstrated in the 2023 legislature. Democratic socialism is a political movement that says what we need to do is you know, genuinely introduce democracy into the United States in all, in all sectors, political, cultural, religious Every sector that that um, that is now dominated by elites, by special powers, by people who are making money off the rest of the population, especially the working class, that we change that all. Of course, that uh, is a long-term kind of uh, vision. But we are part of DSA, and we're happy to be interviewing today um, Representative Zoe Zephyr from Missoula, who was elected as the first transgender uh, person and woman who was elected to the state legislature here in Montana. Um, her platform back in 
22 when she was elected included a whole set of issues um, concerning fighting for human rights, from voting rights to trans rights to working class rights to dismantling the cruelties of the prison industrial complex uh, to creating a, you know, a housing equality and not just housing availability, but housing equality so that um, in Montana where housing is probably the, the most pressing issue for most people who can't afford their rents uh, and can't afford a place for their children to find a, a place to live. Uh, she has worked on a whole set of issues, but during the uh, Montana legislature, she has been a uh, focus of a lot of attention for her uh, work on trying to protect the rights of transgender persons. And those issues that she has been working about, working on, uh, coalesce a lot with the issues that um, we set forth as the DSA legislative uh, issues for this session, which were affordable housing, protection of women's rights and abortion rights, and the rights of working class people, especially union members. And so I want to welcome Zoe Zephyr as a person who has uh, not only gathered a lot of attention, but rightly so as a, as a hero for human rights and for the rights of, of, of all people. And there are a million topics that we could focus in on because the legislature you know, had more than a thousand bills many of which were some of the most uh, regressive pieces of legislation on environmental issues and other kinds of things. But I'd like to ask, uh, Rep well, welcome Representative Zoe Zephyr and also ask her to uh, highlight the issues that she really cares about now and uh, to talk as well about what happened in the legislature and what was revealed in the legislature as she sees it, and then to engage with her in a conversation about what we as people who care about human rights, about democracy, about the rights of uh, the most vulnerable can do and should do to uh, build a future uh, worthy of, of, uh, of our children and of all the, the great persons who are in our lives, as well as the, uh, the nature that we need to learn to love and respect. So Zoe, Thank you very much for being with us. And let me turn it over to you with those questions. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Um, is there a specific place you would like me to start in that in that line? There are you know, six well, or seven. Well, I was thinking, uh, what are the things that in your mind are that were revealed about Montana politics and about the issues that you care about in this last legislature as you've uh, experienced those uh nearly 90 days of uh, grueling work. Yeah, I think the big thing at the center of it all is what was revealed is how far folks on the right will go to achieve their ideological goals. What are they willing to toss aside? What are they willing to ignore? What are they willing to um, undermine? And we saw that, you know, we talked about um, uh, justice and, and um equality, and you look at the way in which the voting rights, one of the things I, I ran on, you looked at a slew of bills that were brought forward this session by 
uh, Republicans targeting our judiciary, um, looking to inject uh, the governor, inject uh, the part, the Republican majority into the judicial process, um, up to and including constitutional amendments, um, up to and including rejecting Marbury versus Madison. Um, and so you see a slew of attacks on the judicial branch on one end, and then on the other, um, you see them ignoring the Constitution, um, with which explicitly has said that Montanans have a right to privacy, and that includes reproductive health care. So we saw an array of, of bills targeting abortion, which the governor signed into a handful of those into law just yesterday. Um, and then you saw in the instance uh, incident surrounding me, the way in which they will toss democracy itself aside um, when someone rises to hold them accountable for the harm that their bills bring. So to me, there's all of those aspects that were revealed very clearly in this legislature of the real risk when you look at what the Republican Party will toss aside when it comes to achieving their goals. And it's democracy. Well, I agree that the things that were revealed, as you've mentioned here, and just really touched some of the surface of some of the issues, is that this uh, supermajority of Republicans um, don't seem to care about any of the issues uh, that the Democratic Socialists of America have cared about, which are, you know, fundamental equality of people, the rights of people to a, a decent living wage, the rights of people to housing, the rights of people to health care. Um, I can't think of a good example in the Republican-dominated legislature where Republicans have shown the slightest interest in uh, worrying about those issues, but they have um, taken on their, I would say, sort of Christian nationalist perspective. Uh, it's a version of Christianity, which I, I don't recognize as anything related to my own faith as a member of the United Church of Christ, one of the most uh, liberal uh, de denominations of Christians in the United States, as well as a democratic socialist. But um, the challenges that they put forth to so many aspects of, of our constitutional uh, order uh, based on the most progressive constitution in the United States, the, the, Dem the Montana Constitution of 1972, um, have been really shocking. Um, I'm not sure what you'd say would be the, the worst, but they, we've got so many issues in which they've attacked uh, those basic, very basic parts of the Montana Constitution, like the right of privacy, uh, we do not have the right. Uh, we have the right to a, uh, an, a, a clean and safe environment, and they seem to have chipped away at uh, protecting that as well. But what would you say are are the the, the most uh, crucial issues that were uh, not protected during this legislation that were revealed as? Uh, just the, the worst things that, so we can build up from there to say where we can go from here. Yeah. So, you know, I think I highlighted a lot of the bad stuff that came forward. I think the, the less, uh, less of what came forward and more of what was missed housing crisis, the housing crisis was not adequately um, yes. addressed. Um, and for me, you know, as someone, 
my district uh, in Missoula is 50% renters. It's people who cannot get into a long-term housing market. They just can't afford it given the nature of <laughs> what the wages are in Missoula. Yes. Um, and there was very, very little done for um, renters in this session. Um, Jonathan Carlin, also from Missoula, representative from Missoula, um, worked with him to get uh, a trailer park uh, bill through. Um, and that was basically the one small win. I had a bill um, for tenants' rights that went through the House and then died in the Senate. But what we saw again and again was landlords come up and nudge the needle when it comes to um, uh, landlord tenants' rights ever so slightly, bit by bit, bill by bill into the landlord's favor. And it, it missed the reality of how difficult it is day to day for people who don't have the resources, um, particularly, you know, my generation and younger who don't have the resources for a long-term home. Um, and there was failings there. And then when it came to building and, you know, red tape relief and um, allowing for um, developments, there was nothing done to ensure that that housing that came in was affordable. That people who, when homes came on the market, that they could go to people who live in Missoula. We know what the wages are in Missoula. We know the price range that price ranges that homes would have to be for people to afford them in Missoula. And there was nothing to ensure that kind of housing really could take root in our uh, biggest. Uh, cities that are struggling. Well, you know, that housing issue has been very, very important uh, for us in the uh, DSA community. And we've had a couple of uh, guests, uh, Elizabeth Marum uh, from Bozeman, uh, from, yeah, from Bozeman, and uh, Sam Forstag from the Montana Coalition to Solve Homelessness. But those issues have been identified in several polls as the most pressing issues for Montanans. In here in Helena, we have um, uh, developed a community called Moving the Dial on Homelessness. And you use that term, Moving the, the Dial, but what we have done here in that community of uh, people from all sectors is to say, uh, what, we what we recognize in Helena, and Helena is not as bad off as, as uh, Bozeman and Missoula, it seems. But what we have is a housing, not a housing crisis, but a housing emergency. Because our rents have increased dramatically, more so than in most communities across the country. And we do not have affordable housing. We have lots of initiatives being planned. But essentially, we're in a situation where uh, the community is finally coming together to say, we must address this crisis. Uh, we have homelessness in, in Helena that is rampant. We have people who are um, uh, in, uh, on waiting lists for affordable subsidized housing, housing that numbers in the hundreds, like 700 people on the list. We have 400 students in the Helena school system who are considered technically homeless. Those are shocking things. And the legislature, I know, 
because of your bills and bills by Marianne Dunwell and bills by Jonathan Carl and, and others, tried to address some of that, but they were pretty much um, um, defeated. And so that's a, that's a tremendous issue. So uh, on housing, boy, we have lots of things to do besides the legislature, which is now, uh, I guess, thankfully adjourned. But what are, what are the things that you might say we could be doing on housing besides um, maybe some of the things you've already mentioned? No, and you think you you actually, all the points you mentioned make, uh, make me think about the fact that we're looking at wages stagnating. We're looking at uh, inventory not increasing uh, as much as it needs to. And when it does show up, showing up at rates above what we can pay, we look at an influx of uh, vacation homes, an influx of short-term rentals uh, in our districts. And thinking about all the ways they intersect together, there are, you know, in terms of housing, there's 30 different dials um, to pull, but it is much like a GoFundMe for healthcare. Uh, it is unfortunate um, and not the way our country should be if the housing crisis, the only people rising to the moment to meet the severity of the housing crisis are people outside of government in the communities, communities coming together as they should to do good work, but it should not be their responsibility um, to uh, meet the needs of their constituent, uh, of their uh, community members. Um, it should be government helping making sure we're building and creating uh, systems that are actually allow people to put down roots in the communities they want to live in. That's, that's what jumps to mind for me, but there was a follow-up question there that I'm... Well, I, I was just going to follow up on your, your comment that, you know, there is a tradition um, that's rooted in the Montana Constitution as well as in the, the traditions of uh, uh, over, the, over the centuries. Um, I mean, lots of traditions and traditions which uh, took us to monarchy of all things. But the tradition is that government is supposed to be working for the common good and especially for the most vulnerable. And it seems that this uh, Republican majority has simply uh, carried on a fight against government fulfilling that role so that they talk about limited government, uh, but what they seem to show is the limits of their compassion um, when, when, they, when they talk that way, because they do not agree with us and you when you say, uh, government should be working to help to resolve these issues. We shouldn't have to always have renters uh, forming renters unions in order to uh, have a decent treatment by landlords. And we know we see that, again, as you mentioned, the, the tenants unions is that people organize, people organize into those collectives when they see that a legislature is session after session, having landlords come in and move the needle and move the needle. Um, so that is, uh, that is a big, um, big thing. But you talk about the um, sorry, hypocrisy of small government, but then actually utilizing government um, to sort of squash uh, local control, to squash uh, parents' rights to um, help their children access life-saving health care. And one of the recurring themes that myself and Representative S.J. Howell and others um, in our caucus would say is that the theme of the legislature was some exceptions apply. And it felt like 
you would hear parental rights being touted. And then they'd say, some exceptions apply. They would say, free speech is important. Some exceptions apply. And one of the most, I think, uh, like poignant moments of that was a parental rights and education bill that came forward. And they said, what the bill said is, if you have a trans child uh, in school that wants to go by a new name and pronoun, you cannot do that without the parent's permission. They said, parental rights. This is a parental rights issue. The parent needs to be notified. The parent needs to be the one to say, yes, that's okay to do. And then it said, if you get that from a parent, you still don't have to use that name and pronoun because free speech, because it's really about free speech. And I said, and in my questioning of the sponsor of that, that legislation, Senator Teresa Manzella, what I said was, what happens to the parents' rights to for to uh, direct the upbringing of their child that you just spoke about so strongly? If the parent says, affirm my child, my child uses these name and pronouns, and you say, well, free speech matters, so no. <laughs> what happens to that parent's rights? And if the parent says, no, I don't want that, well, then what happens to the teacher's free speech that you were just touting a minute ago? And what we see, I think, through that bill is a very clear example in one instance, but it was across the gamut, is we see the way in which the catchphrases that they like to to toss around, um, free speech, parental rights, limited government, they were only meaningful insofar as achieving an ideological goal. And when those professed values didn't serve that ideological goal, they would toss them aside. And that was true, whether it was free speech, whether it was parental rights, whether it was limited government, or whether it was the very foundations of our country and our democratic principles. You know, that's such a uh, challenging perspective because um, here in Montana, we like to think of ourselves as a as a uh, caring community, uh, but there are so many aspects of what the Republican majority have have brought forth that shows they're only concerned about certain rights of certain elites and ruling classes um, that they consider to be the ones whose rights are worthy of of, of uh, respect, and there's a Another whole tradition that I think you and I are a part of that says that perspective uh, you know, is a minority perspective in, in reality. Um, in Montana, it is the case that Republicans have, uh, have won election after election after election. I would say that's primarily because the Democratic Party has really failed miserably in reaching out to our uh, brothers and sisters in the rural communities to to uh, call attention to uh, the fact that Democrats, uh, you know, care about those issues of health care for everyone, uh, housing for everyone, but that uh, has not been successful. And so, in many communities where people are experiencing the same kind of uh, housing crisis or health care crisis, uh, Republicans who uh, don't care about those issues have been elected, and it's very—it's a paradox, but it puts a challenge to us as to say, what, what are the things that we can do to build that larger community uh, of, of youth, uh, of, of 
men and women, of, of children, of older people. I mean, I'm uh, almost 79, so I'm not going to write myself off as uh, a generation that's already over the hill. I'm near the horizon. That's true. But uh, I'm still caring about, you know, my uh, eight uh, grandchildren and their rights and their future. So I'm asking you then, what um, are the things that you hope to be involved in there in Missoula and across the state, apart from uh, running for re-election uh, in the next election, to build that, that community of people who will um, stand up for you know, basic democracy, for social justice, for economic justice, for gender justice, uh, for healthcare justice, for environmental justice. What what do you think ought to be done and how, how do you think you're going to be involved in that movement? Well, I think what people saw is, you know, we talked about all of the, the, the cruelties and the undemocratic things that were revealed. But I think what people also saw is a glimpse of what our state could be if we stand up for the first principles of our country, if we stand up for our values. And I think people want leaders who will do that. They, they, they want people who will aren't afraid, who will put the moral and just thing first, who will focus on the issues and not be afraid to, to stand up for what's right. And so going forward with that, we as elected officials need to center that first and foremost. We need to center the moral and just thing before questions of polling, before questions of is a district winnable or not. You send people to their communities. You help encourage people to rise up in their communities, wherever that is, and stand for, for what's right. And I think, as you mentioned, as we've talked about in you know, tenants, uh, tenants unions and, and mutual aid networks and, and the like, what people can do first and foremost is turn to the communities closest to them. You know, I, I, when I ran for office initially, the thing that was in my heart was saying, what room can my voice do the most good in? And that's was the, the fire to get into the state Capitol. And I think for me, it's this legislature, but for a variety of people, it's a thousand different rooms from a family dinner to an office to a farmer's market, wherever you go, making sure that you are standing up for what is right in that moment. Said it a, a bunch lately, but courage is contagious. And if you see your leaders standing up, if you see people you care about standing up, stand up as well. And then once you've done that, look for the others standing up. Look for the organizations, the community organizations, the, the your union organizations, um, and try to get involved with them. Because I do think we're seeing, and I spoke to members of the Tennessee Three about this, I think we're seeing an awareness, like an awakening um, to what is at stake in our country and an understanding that when they come for one of us, they are coming for all of us. When they target trans rights. They are targeting healthcare. They are targeting bodily autonomy, much like when they target abortion. When they are targeting um, and silencing a minority group, they are silencing an array of minority groups. You look at the way that they silenced uh, Representative Maury Turner, uh, non-binary Black Muslim legislator out of Oklahoma. You look at what they did to the folks in Tennessee. 
And what we're seeing is that leaders are standing up and holding them accountable. And our communities are recognizing that that is possible. So the work going forward is standing up, seeing who else is standing up. And then we need to work to connect in existing frameworks um, and organizations and also see um, if we can create something new and, and powerful to make this state a place that we can be happy to put down roots in. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking, uh, I just flashed back to a, a conversation I had back in, I believe it was 1976, with Philip Berrigan. He was the brother of Daniel Berrigan, the more famous peace activist from the 60s through the late 90s. And Philip Berrigan was a, a, a Catholic priest who was active on racial and economic justice, as well as peace issues and Spent a lot of time in jail for his opposition to the U.S. militarism. But he came to Helena. And I asked him, Phil, how do you change the world? A little question like that. And he said, as he paused for thinking, he says, well, change your heart. First, change your heart. Change your life. Change your community and the system. And he said, in that order. And I, I think that as I look back upon that saying and response, I think it relates to something you said, because you're saying that the community has to awaken. And one of those things about changing your heart, of course, that traditional um, words from, from Jesus, you know, uh, change your heart uh, for uh, the rule of justice is at hand. But changing your heart is the beginning. And a lot of people have been sitting on the sidelines for a long, long time. And now they're recognizing that their brothers and sisters, uh, whether they're uh, poor or whether they're uh, any of the vulnerable populations uh, who have been attacked by uh, right-wing uh, zealots, whether in the name of Christianity or whatever ideology, uh, they're saying that I have to stop sitting on the sidelines and, and get active and, and, and see that when others are hurt, these are my brothers, these are my sisters who are being hurt. And I mentioned to one of our earlier guests that this is not a you know particularly Christian idea. Plato put it forth in, in his, uh, I used to teach philosophy, so I'm not sure how many people read Plato these days. But uh, he said in right at the center of his book the, called The Republic, which is about how there could be a society of justice that is created. And, and someone asks him, uh, how can we do that, Socrates? And he says, well, we'll have to tell a big lie. And they said, what? He says, well, we'll have to tell people that we're all brothers and sisters. Now, at that time, you know, there were Greeks and barbarians and Greeks and Persians and this and that. And so he said, well, you know, you got, you got to get rid of those, you know, false uh, dichotomies. We're all part of the same family. And what happens to the least of our sisters and brothers is what we should be caring about as much as what happens to us and to the powerful. Uh, and so your, your thoughts, I, I think about, you know, that you just mentioned before about building that wider community and recognizing our solidarity with, with all of these groups is uh, in fact uh, part of an awakening uh, that is happening. 
And I think it's a positive sign in spite of all these negative signs uh, that, that happened in this legislature. I think someday we'll come back and we will have a legislature that has uh, more people like you and more people like Marianne Dunwell, more people uh, you know, like the people who've been fighting for economic and social and environmental justice. Um, in Missoula, I know lots of people turned out for a rally um, last, I guess it was last Friday, and uh, committed themselves to, you know, continuing that that activity in Missoula. We had had similar kinds of things happening in Helena, but not quite as dramatic as that rally that you were involved in uh, the day after, uh, it was last Friday, when we, well, it wasn't last Friday, it was the Friday before that. It seems like time is flying here, but, uh, those issues of uh, coming, waking up and coming together are just really crucially important. Um, I know that uh, all over the country, people are calling you for interviews and you've got other pressing things to do, but I want to uh, give you a chance in just in the final few moments of our interview here, discussion here, not only to thank you, but also to just give you one more chance to uh, reiterate what is uh, you know really been revealed to you, and what you think we should do to move forward to a, a society that we can be proud of as a society of justice and democracy. It's exactly what you said in your last moment there about changing your heart. I talk about uh, the concentric circles of care and starting with the care within yourself, with standing tall with who you are and your value set. And then moving as you have that and can stand tall, moving into your communities, moving into the org organizations and uh, unions and et cetera, doing the work, and then moving into broader systemic change, as you mentioned. And I think what I am seeing in this moment, and people ask like, hey, has this been hard on you? Has it, have you been struggling? And what I've said is, no, this has not, because I see a glimpse of what our state and what our country could be. And in this moment, I feel like the world sees that. And the machinery of politics, the machinery of the system for a second seems to crack open and shows that change is possible if we just stand for our values. And I hope people will join alongside myself, my community and the long history of people who have stood up for democracy and stood up for what this country should look like. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad I got to do this. We're very glad that you were here. We, we welcome you into this community of uh, dialogue about, about our future. The Democratic Socialists of America, uh, of whom uh, Martin Luther King was a member, uh, had that tradition following him and other leaders like Barbara Ehrenreich from, from Butte and Michael Harrington from New York City, in saying that possibly uh, democratic socialism, meaning respect for all the basic rights of, of humans, um, will someday come to fruition, but they're like seeds buried under snow. But King, Martin Luther King said, uh, quoting uh, another uh, writer that he was quoting, said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Do we believe that? Or do we say, hmm, it's always going to be this way, all screwed up, and I might as well just give up. But we don't give up. And we thank uh, 
we are very thankful for having people like you, Zoe, who bring tough minds and tender hearts to this struggle. And we thank you very much for your uh, commitment and for your activities. And we look forward to uh, working with you together in the future. So go ahead. That arc of history bending towards justice, it bends when we come together and bend it towards justice ourselves as a community. Yes, 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 yes. Well, thank you very much, Zoe Zephyr from Missoula. Uh, representative for House District 100, who was um, treated so shabbily by the leadership uh, in the Montana legislature, but always will be in our hearts as a person that we cherish and and love um, and respect. And side by side, codo a codo como un solo hombre, side to side, like one person, we will work together in compassion for the society that we uh, we hope to bring to, to bear. Thank you very much, Zoe. Thank you for having me. As is our theme here, oh, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Beside the third wave workers of Missoula at Black Coffee Roasters, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other service industry and other workers as well. That's right, Jim. Um, there are at least six more worksite organizing drives happening here in Missoula, um, actually two in the last two weeks that we've become uh, aware of. And there's more. Wow. There's more happening that we don't know about, too. Um, anyway, but there's six right now that it, 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 this month with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. Anyone who works in Western Montana and who is interested in organizing or knows someone who does you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. Uh, you can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406 924 3830. That's 406-924-3830. Well, thanks, Sue and Jim, for a great show, as always. Um, and thanks for listening, everyone. Please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thank you. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. I'm sentimental, if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. Left or right, I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in that hopeless little scream. But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Democracy is coming to the USA.